0: Welcome back from your break. And uh, if you could please turn in your scriptures to Mark's gospel, chapter seven, the gospel of Mark, chapter seven. If you're joining us on the stream, welcome again. We're glad you're here. We're in a series on the gospel of Mark, which is found in the New Testament. So if you look in your table of contents or you you click on the Bible Gateway app that we've given you and type in the word Mark, and then the number seven, uh, verse one, is where we'll be beginning um, our, uh, our message today. Um, each of us are familiar as you're turning to Mark seven. Uh, each of us are familiar with the practice and tradition that is associated with the opening uh, of a trial, whether that be a civil trial or a criminal trial, whether it be one where you've been selected for jury duty or you're watching it uh, uh, live uh, on TV or seeing a dramatization on it, the witness is called forward, Um, uh, he or she is sworn in and what do they do next? Where do they place their hand? They place their hand on a Bible and the bailiff then says, do you solemnly swear with their hand on the Bible? Say it with me to tell the truth. truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? So help me God. So help me God. Mm-hmm. So Jesus wants to have a conversation with you and with me. He's, he's inviting us It's part of a conversation he had with the Pharisees because they were charged, right, by God. It was the essence of their calling, say it with me, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And they were convinced they were doing that. And thus our passage today, because a Christian as we are, if you're joining us, that's what we claim to be when we open our mouths and we say, this is what the Bible says, we are saying, we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And yet, as we read today, Jesus wants to have a conversation with you and with me and with those that we know, those that we love, when it comes to the truth, the truth about him, the truth about God's word, and the truth about religion as it affects each of us and our world today. This is God's word. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes, note this, who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then you see the parentheses? Mark's now going to provide some explanation for his readers. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come to the, from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels, And dining couches, The story continues. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, now he quotes the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, here's Mark again, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And many such things you do. Jesus wants to have a conversation with the religious among us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for Mark's careful curating of eyewitness testimonies of this conversation Jesus had with some Pharisees and and some scribes that came down from Jerusalem to accuse him of being ritually unclean and therefore having no authority to say and do the things that he did. We pray, Lord, that today would be a day where you would unlock perhaps a door that has been closed or bring light to an area of our lives that is perhaps darkened by the past or fears of the future, or Lord, hope to a part of our soul where we are restless with hopelessness because of oral traditions we have heard from others, or the influence of conventional wisdom when it comes to what Christ teaches and said, or own my own inclinations, to forget what the gospel clearly proclaims and put my faith in something I do instead. Be glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me tell you where we're going today, and then I'll tell you how we're going to get there. the end of our service, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus through Jim is going to lead us in the hymn Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My question for you, and my question for me too, have we sung that song in so many words into those areas of our life where we might be doubting that because of the impact of tradition or religion or even what other Christians have told us is true? So my goal today, by God's grace, is to say, this is the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And no, your tradition should not disagree with mine because we are going to stay focused on the gospel for God's glory. Here's my main point. Cleanness and closeness to God is found only in Jesus Christ cleanness which seems to be an emphasis in this passage the scribes Pharisees accused some of Jesus disciples of being defiled unclean and Jesus rebukes them in fact he's far harsher on them than that cleanness and closeness to God is found only in Jesus and so my outlines simple we're going to look at the charge of the religious authorities, they're bringing a charge. This has all the makings of a, in some ways of a grand jury. They've got evidence and they're bringing a charge. And then Jesus' verdict about these religious authorities, he doesn't just correct them, he renders a verdict and it is stark, it is stern. And then good news, one with good news about our spiritual uncleanness. So let's begin this conversation Jesus has with religious folks by looking at the charge, beginning in verse 1 through verse 5. And I think to do that, it would be helpful to remember that Mark is telling a story, a true story. And so this conversation that is occurring in chapter 7 has some background, has some history in this gospel. If this gospel, one of the earliest, if not the earliest gospel written, was the one that circulated in Peter and Paul's churches, then many of them would be Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish, and so they wouldn't know this background. They wouldn't have categories of Pharisees and scribes, and they certainly wouldn't be aware of any type of oral tradition that Jewish religious leaders taught about ritual cleanness. And so let's consider the background briefly, brief and amazing, that Mark has provided, that the original readers would have had at their disposal he introduced, us, he introduced us to the Pharisees in chapter 3. We haven't heard from them since then, but flip back with me to chapter 3, verse 1. I'm not going to reread the passage, but just to put you where I'm drawing it from. Jesus entered a synagogue, chapter 3, verse 1, and there was a man with a withered hand. And it was the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath day that the Ten Commandments called for the Jewish people to set apart as holy, meaning no work, gather together and worship Yahweh. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. And he heals the man with the withered hand. And the Pharisees, it says, verse 6, went out immediately and counseled with the Herodians how to destroy him. Jesus heals on the Sabbath, a man with a withered hand, and the Pharisees counsel with those in political authority, the Herodians, to destroy him. That's the Pharisees. That's the last time we heard of from them. Verse 22, same chapter, and this is my final background note. The scribes, these are, these are like attorneys, that working with the Pharisees, are meticulous in their attention to the detail of not only the laws of Moses, but the oral traditions that rabbis have have handed down through the centuries to preserve the laws of Moses, beginning with the Ten Commandments, and protect their priority, and to ensure that the people of God, that God has covenant with, remain distinct from the nations of the world, and therefore... Are objects of God's presence and blessing and remain His treasured possession. The scribes, verse 22 of chapter 3, came down from Jerusalem again and they said to Jesus, You're possessed by Beelzebub, you're possessed by Satan. How else can you cast out demons from people who are being possessed? by evil spirits. You're in allegiance with Satan. You're exercising the power of the dark realm. You're, do you see what they're doing? Both the Pharisees and the scribes are challenging his authority. They're challenging his authority, Jesus of Nazareth. They're claiming that you are not close with God. And therefore, you cannot lead people to be close with God or into God's presence because you're breaking the law of the Sabbath and healing and you're delivering people from the power of Satan himself through Satan himself. That's the context. Verse 7. Some Pharisees and scribes came down from Jerusalem and they saw that some I'm going to suggest it was Peter. Peter strikes me as someone that's a hungry chap. that's not going to engage in ritual washing prior to a meal. I can't base that on any scriptural evidence, but this is Mark's story based on Peter's eyewitness account. So I think Peter's one of these disciples that they ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. Now, For me and for perhaps you, our category for this right now is hygiene, right? It's that idea that we taught our kids, they've been playing outside or they've been downstairs or who knows, they've been picking their nose or doing something. And we say before they come to the meal, what? Wash your hands. Wash your hands. I think it's a good practice. Do you wash your hands? No, I wash my hands. If I don't, my mom will probably tell me to wash my hands. This has nothing to do. With hygiene. Nothing. Zero. That's a modern sensibility. This has to do with ritual cleansing. That was first instituted at the time of Moses. Among whom? The priests. The priests, when they would administrate the service at the temple, they would have to be ritually clean, before they offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, I'm not talking about the the day of atonement where one, the high priest would go, I'm talking about the daily sacrifice. They would ritually clean themselves. They would wash themselves. They would cleanse themselves. And over the centuries, the Pharisees, or those who preceded them, their teachers, generations of rabbis, said, you know what? We're going to bring this to the people because we want the people to be ritually clean. We want the people to receive the the, the blessing of God, his presence. We want the people to do this. And so they brought through something called the Mishnah, which is just a large book of oral traditions, instructions and practices and rituals, that the people of God, the Jewish people, should ritually clean themselves however they did that prior to eating, particularly if the food was brought from the marketplace where there was unclean food or unclean people. And in the New Testament, that's always who? The Gentiles. The non-Jews. And so they're eating, but they're not washing. They got the food probably from a marketplace where they were exposed to unclean people or unclean food, and they're not washing. And the Pharisees and the scribes, do you know, see this? They notice it. They know why are they noticing it? Well, I don't know. Maybe their mothers, like mine, pressed upon them the hygiene of personal hand washing before meal. Or, or they've been watching Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, spend a lot of time with people who are unclean. In fact, it seems like he spends most of his time, if not with his disciples, with people who, Jewish law speaking, are unclean. Touching a dead person. There's laws involving that. Jairus' daughter was dead before he raised her. There's there's there's, there's pages of laws about what you're supposed to do after that. He said, daughter, rise. Jesus went about his way. Being in the presence of a demoniac who has legion amongst, amongst the, the Gennesaret, the Gentiles, that's unclean. Just the zip code is unclean, let alone engaging him. He's probably touching him. The demoniac falls down his feet. He's having contact with him. He's unclean. Pharisees and scribes are aware of that. The woman who touches him, who's been bleeding for so many years and is sick, touches him and he realizes she's been healed. And he turns around and he says, "Who touches me and his disciples are bewildered. Like, Lord, it's a large crowd. We're all touching you. Can we keep moving? And he calls to her. He is ritually unclean because she is bleeding. That's Old Testament law. That's Old Testament Teaching, and now there's been all these oral traditions, oral meaning they're not necessarily written down, but they're passed down orally, compiled in in this Mishnah that Jesus, since the beginning of his earthly ministry, has been ignoring. And so when the scribes come down from Jerusalem and join the Pharisees, this is not a fact-finding mission. They are beginning to plot. His death. They have already concluded he is guilty. They are now publicly in front of this crowd that we saw in chapter 6. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. People are wanting to take him by force to be king. They are accusing him publicly of being unclean. Have you ever noticed when religious people who you respect are pious and walk with a degree of integrity, you know, whether you agree with their piety or not, you know what I mean by piousness, they're just, they're they're straight people, religiously speaking, and they say something to you or to a group that you're with that indicates that what you're doing or not doing, this is not right. You ever notice what happens when that in the room, even if you're convinced what you're doing is right? wish I had a good example. I don't tend to hang with a lot of religious people. But I think, I think it has a chilling effect. We don't say that in my company. We don't do that. We only say this and we only do that. Now there's nuances here and if you are just allow. They accuse him in front of the crowd. Publicly, of being ritually unclean. It's a serious charge. It's a serious accusation. These individuals will be the same individuals that crucify him in just a few chapters. They are not asking a question, and they certainly don't care about his disciples they are saying, why do your disciples break the traditions of our people and risk the consequences of uncleanness before a holy and righteous God? They're trying to discredit him. And I imagine the people who are watching this are saying, can you be close to God and lead us into his presence if you are ritually unclean? For that's what we've been taught for generations in the oral traditions. Let's look at Jesus' verdict trying to build the tension. So it rescues you and me from just familiarity of the passage. He doesn't answer their question as he often does in other accounts. I'm sure you notice that he never answers their question. Instead, he addresses the underlying issue that is revealed in their question in verses six through 13. And so this is my second point. Jesus verdict about the religious. He calls them hypocrites in verse six. And then he quotes scripture. They're quoting oral traditions. He quotes Isaiah the prophet. Well is it written. The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Then he concludes, having quoted Isaiah to them. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of God. Men, And then he introduces an example, beginning in verse 9. I'm not sure why this example is the one he chooses. Commentators seem divided on this. But it involves the commandment in the Ten Commandments to honor your mother and your father. And it describes a man in verse 11 who has made a vow in essence. Corbin is the word. It's a good word. It, mean, it literally means to bring an offering. A man who makes a vow to give his money or his possessions to the temple or to the priests or to the synagogue, he has vowed before God that he's going to give this wealth that he has, or if he's not wealthy, this, this, what he does have to the temple or the synagogue or to the priesthood. And then he finds out in verse 12 that his parents are ill and that in their illness, they have become destitute and that the money that, that he has could help them and be enlisted to aid them in their, in their plight. So I guess in modern day circumstances, you've, you bequeath the legacy gift to compassion international or to a ministry you support and you discover that that one of your family members they they have reached the ceiling on their their health care policy and they didn't have an umbrella they didn't have savings and yet you've you've created in your will or legacy in your, that you're going to give so much of what you have, but you realize that that same money could now go to this family member, right? And help with those medical bills. And the Pharisees and the scribes taught that if you already committed it to God, that was their oral tradition. If you already devoted it to God, Corbin, if you already made a vow to God, Corbin, that to keep. The fifth commandment, fourth commandment, and honor your mother and your father by caring for them broke the tradition. And Jesus says, You hypocrites, you leave the commandment of God. I mean, this is one of the big ten. In order to keep Your oral traditions. And he goes even further yet in his verdict. Verse 13. You make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And then it gets even worse. And many such things you do. So let me get this straight they're accusing Jesus of being defiled and therefore unclean. And so not only cannot lead people into the presence of God, but is actually worse leading them away from the word of God, where in reality, his accusers have abandoned the word of God in order to uphold their oral traditions and their own authority, by the way, since this is their rule book that they're upholding, uphold the oral traditions, all the while not realizing that they are not only not leading the people towards the presence of God, they have abandoned God's spoken word altogether. David Hell makes an observation which some of us have been exposed to in the Simeon Trust ministry, which is serving so many pastors, not only in this country, but internationally. says, quote, one, I'll put my word, I, I'm just going to put me in there so you don't feel like I'm putting you in this. I am often tempted to say more or less than the scripture says. When I add to what the scripture commands, I become legalistic. When I take away from what the scripture says, it lands us in licentiousness. Big word just means you're just doing what you want to do, whether God prohibits it or not. We must consider ourselves to the whole truth and only the truth on what the Bible teaches. That That is what it means to stay on the line of Scripture. we were talking about that in New Members. We were talking about some traditions a couple weeks ago that churches are known for. But they don't take a lot of time to explain where in Scripture that tradition stands. They emphasize it. They use the language every week. You would think it's a prominent teaching in the Scripture. And I get why pastors do it, of which I am a part and we try not to do this, but we can always grow. But then you look at the scripture, okay, you say that's not emphasized in the Bible. Why is it then emphasized every week in church? Oh, it's the oral tradition that they heard from their sincere godly mentors. And now it's being passed on to another There is good news here for each of us because I don't believe any of us with sincerity is accusing Jesus of being in allegiance with Satan or doing what he does through the dark arts of the kingdom of darkness or leading people away from, I don't believe you believe that even if Maybe you're not convinced Jesus is the Savior or the Lord. or I, don't, I think even if you don't believe that, you still think he's, he's a good guy, a righteous guy, uh, whatever that means to you. So the good news of this passage, which Dave's going to unpack even more next week as he takes the second part, is that of ritual cleanness before God, which always results in closeness with God, is not dependent on what we do. Washing our hands, keeping rituals that a religious authority says, or whatever other traditions we've been, but it's entirely my ritual cleanness before God. Listen, no one is in God's presence this morning. That is not clean in Christ. In Christ. We heard that from Jim when he called us to worship. Roxanne encouraged us that in Christ, we are clean. Isn't that good news? That's amazing news. That's extraordinary. And if we're clean, meaning we've been cleansed, not only of our sins, but we've been cleaned of its guilt. And we've been cleansed of its penalty. How far can I walk? And we've been freed from that. Then that means God is close to us. And he is close to me. Because closeness and cleanness. Is that a word in the English language? Is found through Jesus alone. Spiritually speaking. That's such good news. For people who are in this church and every church that live life tinged with a sense of regret about something in their past. And this rehearsal plays out. I wish I hadn't done that. I know I wasn't a Christian at the time, or I was a Christian. That might even make it worse. I wish I hadn't done that. I live with a sense of regret that I had. So I'm just going to forget about it. I'm going to forget about it. I'm going to do a cognitive reset. I'm going to forget about it. I'm going to busy myself with righteous things. I'm going to get busy with kingdom things so I can forget about it. It doesn't work. It's amazing. It's amazing what I think about when I'm raking up the leaves yesterday. Only to look behind me, and as fast as I'm raking them up, they're falling down. And this thought flashes across my brain not about leaves. Oh, I wish it were just about leaves. That's something I said to my kid when I rake leaves with them. And it wasn't grace and mercy in that moment. It was if you don't pick up that rake and start raking, I am going to. And I said what my parents said to me. I handed the oraltition, and they picked up the rake and did what I told them to do. It breaks my heart to this day. Not that I'm home accountable, but I'm representing Jesus to them in that moment. And he looks like a snarling wolverine. Not a gentle shepherd. So we have this thing in our past, and if we don't forget about it, then this is what I do because this is just what I do. I, I know I'm dysfunctional. I blame others for what they did to me. And they may have done something to me. They, they may have done something that was hurtful to me. they may have done something that was 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 bad and it has left. It has, left, it has left its own legacy in my memory and in my relationship. I don't want to go into details, but I just, I, I, I was innocent in that sense, and this happened to me by them. I, I believed the best, or I, I trusted them, or I was in a relationship where they were supposed to be more protective or and this is what happened and they feel unclean they feel unclean and they're a christian or they're not what is the good news for them what is the good news For me, the good news is Jesus is my cleanness before God. And therefore he brings me close to God, his cleanness, my forgiveness through his shed and substitutionary shed blood and substitute death on the cross and triumphant resurrection and present reign. He cleanses me and brings me close to God so that now my new identity is I'm his beloved child forever. Isn't that good news? That wasn't very convincing. (laughs) Otherwise, all we're left with are these traditions and these oral teachings of things we have to do or not do or we should have done because of our defilement before a holy God. The definition of cleanness is simply this, the quality or state of being clean without other impurities. That's how we are in Christ. And when we bring this reality through the help of the spirit and prayer and scripture and when we bring this reality to those, those experiences and memories and actions and, and I saw something during the world series last night that really bothered me. What year is it? 2024. The game is on the line. The closing, 2023, thank you, Angela. (laughs) The game's on the line. And the closing pitcher does something that I couldn't believe, and I'm rooting for this team. You know what I'm talking about? He's walking off the mound, and he's approaching that third base line, and you know what he does? And that's not a, hey, look at me, I just struck out the side jump. Then when he walks back out of the dugout, a little more athletic than that, because you know what the tradition is for some in baseball? You never step on the third baseline or the first baseline because that's bad luck. In other words, if he steps on the line, the next time he goes out, he's gonna throw a 4 fastball down the middle of the plate and that opposing player is gonna make a meal out of it. And it's gonna cost him the game. See where I'm going with that? When a Christian hasn't really done this and experienced this. I'm preaching myself and lives in this. When you're confronted with the uncertainty about the future, you can tell me till I'm blue in the face, how gospel centered you are. Your uncertainty and fear about the future because of the past tells me you're keeping a tradition. You're following an oral tradition. You're believing something that's not Jesus's tradition So Jesus says to us this morning, let's start a new gospel tradition. When we are fearful about the future, and we are uncertain about the past, let's pray the gospel to ourselves. Let's pray the gospel to one another. Let's remind ourselves that in Christ, my sins, though they be scarlet, are snow-like because he is clean. And therefore, we are close to him and our future, uncertain as it may be, rests in his hands. In other words, when God looks at his future plan for you, he doesn't rehearse your past. He rehearses Christ's accomplishments. I want my neighbors to know this. I want my neighbors to know that being a Christian doesn't mean they follow my church traditions. I want my coworkers to know that a relationship with Jesus and all that it promises doesn't mean they'll have to start to talk like me or dress like me or listen to the music or whatever. God will sanctify them. I'll encourage them to go to church. They should go to church. But all the traditions and the things that we think distinguish Christianity, this is a gospel tradition that we must nail down. Cleanness and closeness to God is found only in Jesus Christ. What good news. I close with this. Ken Hughes writes, STEAM pastor, College Park Church. Illinois near Wheaton's campus the gospel is radical it promises a new birth a new heart a new creation a resurrection apart from Christ yes the world is desperately lost it can only be redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus there's no other way we can polish the outside we can educate ourselves we can do quote good things but none of these things will really change us We need Christ. We need Christ's life. Friends, what have you learned today about the person and work of Jesus from today's passage? Was it good news to you? How might this passage this week be good news for someone who's religious and puts their hope for salvation there? How is this passage good news for someone who's irreligious who doesn't identify with any institutional church or Christian group and puts their hope in their irreligion. How is Christ calling us to respond to him as our savior today? For as he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you in that same section Unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus invites us to enter his kingdom through faith and repentance in him that our cleanness and our closeness with God is assured. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are thankful for those good traditions that have delivered so much meaning and purpose into our lives. Lord, we, many churches will celebrate the Protestant Reformation at the end of this month. We have Veterans Day in just a, f- a few days, so we pay honor to our veterans. Thanksgiving is a tradition where families often gather and, and give thanks to you, but also enjoy their identity as a family. Lord, there, there are good traditions that enrich our lives, Lord, but in this passage, we see also the risk of other traditions Maybe traditions that we have heard from someone we trust. Maybe maybe teachings that seem good at the time to us, but that haven't obscured Christ in our lives. So at least for me, Jesus, forgive me for standing above the line of Scripture in the shepherding of my own soul And adding to what you have done, which ultimately takes away from what I believe is true. Now, Lord, by your mercy, as we sing this song, restore our confidence in nothing but the blood of Jesus as the basis of our cleansing. As the foundation of your closeness in our lives and of our hope for the future nothing but the blood of Jesus through faith in him and repentance of our sins, nothing but his blood. Lord, brings cleanness and closeness to God for the glory of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.